So, let's talk about Zechariah. Um, you probably know he's a prophet in the Old Testament, uh, and he is. He's so-called one of the minor prophets. The minor prophets are not called minor prophets because they're less important. The minor prophets are called minor because their writings are smaller. You know, when you look at something like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel, massive books of the Hebrew Bible. But the minor prophets uh, tend to be short, tend to be very short um, books of the Hebrew Bible. Um, Zechariah actually is one of the longer ones with 14 chapters. Um, so you probably don't know much about Zechariah. His, his name, and this is important, the name Zechariah, usually in English spelled with an E, as opposed to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Uh, Zechariah is uh, spelled with an E. I'm sure it is in all your Bibles. Have you found your way there yet? Get to the Old Testament, go back a few books and toward Genesis, and you'll get to it. The, the name Zechariah, and it's a common name there, almost 30, 29, somewhere between 27 and 29 uh, people in the Old Testament named Zechariah. It's a very common Bible name. Uh, it means in Hebrew, the Lord remembers. Uh, and there's a good reason for that, particularly with this book. You know, you have to ask, well, what, what is it the Lord is remembering in the, in the, in, in the book of Zechariah? Um, we'll get to that. Uh, as I said, it's the apocalypse of the Old Testament. Apocalypse means that it's a literature that's heavy on symbols. If you've done anything with the book of Revelation, you know symbols are important. And symbols are important to the Christian faith and the Jewish faith. Apocalyptic means uh, it's, a, it's a style of writing where they'll do a lot of symbols. Um, apocalyptic literature tends to be, here's another big term, and I'll quit doing this, eschatological. Uh, if you don't know if you know the word eschatological, you need to know it. Uh, you, you know the word Eschaton. Eschaton means the end, capital E. So then eschatology is the study of what? End times. That's right, study of end times, study of last things. So we have eschatological literature scattered throughout the Bible, like parts of Daniel are eschatological. All of Revelation is eschatological. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus' Olivet Discourses, uh, we call them Olivet Discourses because he delivered them on the Mount of Olives, but those speeches such as what's recorded in Mark 13 is an eschatological discourse. So eschatology is study of last things, study of end things. Uh, Jews did it long before we Christians started doing it. Um, so th these three chapters of Zechariah are um, eschatological. And that's why when you got this, there's a big portion of the book of Ezekiel that's eschatological. And that's why when you uh, find the eschatological material in Ezekiel, the eschatological material in Zechariah, it does heavily, heavily, heavily influence uh, all Christian eschatologies, such as the book of Revelation, so that's there. So Zechariah um, 12, 13, and 14, those chapters are eschatological. His name means God remembers. That's why it's a common Hebrew name. It's, uh, that's a good name, God remembers. We are going to see how, particularly in this book, uh, it's about God remembering his promises to the people of Israel. And it's not just the promises about 
you know, I'll be there with you in all of life and you'll be comforted by my presence. Uh, those are great promises. The promises that Ezekiel is concerned with are those promises that God has made about the future history of the Israelite people. Future history of the temple. The temple is really important to Zechariah. Uh, the future history of the Messiah for the, for the Jewish people. So God remembers, I think particularly in the book of Zechariah, God is the assurance that God remembers his promises. Uh, let me tell you why I think it's important for Zechariah to write like this. Uh, let me make sure you know where Zechariah comes from. Zechariah is one of the three um, post-exilic prophets. Um, with, 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 with Zechariah, you, you've got Zechariah and um, you got Zechariah, Ezekiel, um, you, you've got uh, Haggai. These are prophets that came, obviously, after the exile. And, of course, you need to know what the exile is. The exile, um, the, the exile influenced all of your Old Testament literature. The, the exile influenced the Jewish people um, more than 9-11 and John F. Kennedy's assassination bound together influenced Americans. So the exile is um, really important to the Jewish people. Just like in the New Testament, the destruction of the temple was really important to the writings of the New Testament. Uh, the exile that influenced a lot of your Old Testament writings had to do uh, with what occurred at the end of um, the 600s before Christ, um, which is the 7th century, and the beginning of the 500s before Christ, the 6th century. So Zechariah is, is, is living in the period from like 580 through 620 A.D. before Jesus. The reason that's important is that's right after the exile. Now, what happened in the exile? Uh, you may know the, you know, the, um, the Assyrians are the ones who destroyed the northern kingdom. The ten tribes that we call the ten lost tribes of Israel, um, they just got dispersed. They didn't really get lost. They got dispersed. They never returned. Um, so Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, destroyed the northern kingdom, uh, the city of Samaria, um, and, and, and carried many of them off into captivity. Well, after the Assyrian Empire fell, uh, you had the rise of the Babylonian Empire. Um, Zechariah is going to call them Chaldeans. Uh, Babylonian Empire, Neo-Babylonian Chaldeans, that's just the next uh, power players on the stage after the Assyrians. They're the ones who destroyed Jerusalem. They're the ones who destroyed the first temple. The temple's been destroyed twice, right? The temple's been destroyed twice. So the temple that may, that will be, rebuilt in the future, we refer to as the third temple. Uh, because there's been two temples in Jerusalem. The first one's the one Solomon built. Uh, in some ways, maybe the most glorious. The temple that Solomon built. Um, that was destroyed by the Babylonians. Um, is Zechariah's generation, they were carried off into exile into Babylon. Uh, Zechariah was, a, so he had been born in Babylon. Um, he was a priest and a prophet. He's both, we can tell that from his literature. Uh, there's only two other authors of the Old Testament that are both priests and prophets. Uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were priests and prophets. Zechariah, obviously, is a priest and a prophet. He's really concerned about the temple. His role in Jewish history has to do with the temple. So he was 
born in Babylon in the exile. And then when the Persian king Cyrus came to power, he allowed, he took over the Assyrian Empire, he allowed what Jews wanted to, to return home. So a lot of Jews did pack up after being 40, 50, 60 years in Babylon. They packed up and went back to Jerusalem. A lot did not, by the way. You know, so, I mean, like, I had the option to go back to Ireland. I doubt I would take it. My family came from there, but, you know, we've been here a long time now, so this feels like home. So a lot of the Jews did not go back to Jerusalem. Uh, Zechariah was one that did. He was one of that first wave of about 50,000 Jews. And you can start calling them Jews after this point. He was one that you, you can only call them Jews after, after they returned from exile. Uh, that's another story. That's when you call them Jews as opposed to Israelites. But anyway, he was, he was part of that Jewish community that returned uh, uh, to rebuild Jerusalem after it was destroyed by the Babylonians, the temple was destroyed. So, of course, when he gets back, and I said he's a prophet and a priest, he wants to, um, he wants to motivate the people to build the temple, rebuild the temple, build the temple back. Um, but of course, you know, if you've been in exile and you're just returning to um, a city that had been decimated by war and exile, there's still people living there. They've been decimated by war and exile. When you return, the first thing you want to do is not going to be regardless of what God wants. You're probably not going to want to build the temple first. You want to build your place to live. Uh, you know the book of De Nehemiah. You want to build the walls of the city because you've got enemies around you. Well, after you get back, particularly if you're the Jewish people, after you get back, you need to start thinking about rebuilding that temple. Um, Haggai and Zechariah were two of the prophets who had to keep motivating the people to rebuild the temple. It took about 20 years to rebuild the temple. Um, that would be the second temple. Uh, that's the temple. The one they rebuilt is the temple that Herod renovates massively. King Herod the Great uh, renovates, and that would be the temple that Jesus would have known, uh, the renovated second temple. Um, the one to come will be the third temple. But Zechariah is motivating the people to rebuild the temple because he's prophet and priest. He, they need to rebuild the temple. They want to reinstitute animal sacrifice, reinstitute grain sacrifices, all of the temple worship that came to an end when the temple was destroyed, um, just like it came to an end the second time when the Romans destroyed it. But, but Zechariah's trying to motivate, like, hey, guy is, rebuild the temple. Um, there was, um, one of the reasons they had to be motivated to rebuild the temple is a lot of their neighbors did not want them to rebuild the temple, people around Jerusalem. You ever heard of Samaritans? They had their own temple. They were the half-breed Jews. You know that from New Testament, right? They were sort of the half-breed Jews. They were the people who were left in the land that intermingled with other people that were in the land, and that's why they were not the, 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 the caliber of Jews that went away to exile that came back, and that's why by the time of Jesus, you got this little thing going on between Samaritans and Jews. And that's why you remember Jesus in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman, and he's talking about true worship, worshiping God in spirit and truth. And he said to that Samaritan woman, you worship on Mount Gerizim. We worship in Jerusalem. So the Samaritans had their own temple. 
So yeah, they, they didn't warm up to the idea of Jerusalem, people coming back to Jerusalem and, and building the new improved old temple. Um, so there were, there were several, and again, you know the book of Nehemiah. It was not even re easy, to build, e easy to rebuild the walls, but then the temple is another issue. Zechariah's pushing them to rebuild the temple. Now, here's where it gets into eschatology and end-time history. One of the things that Zechariah's going to say to them, he's going to say, basically, God remembers, Babylon, exile in Babylon, did not bring the promises of God to an end. Yeah, it's been a hard 40, 50, 60 years. We've been in exile. We've been in a foreign country. We're coming home now to rebuild our lives, rebuild our city, rebuild our walls, and rebuild the temple. Um, Zechariah is saying God's promises didn't go away. Promises such as build the temple, Messiah will come. Build the temple, and eventually the world will worship at it. Build a temple, and eventually Zion will be so restored that Zion will be the center of the universe. But if you want to head toward those promises, people, he's telling them, if you want to head toward those promises, Messiah, glorified Zion, Zion's another name for Jerusalem, glorified Zion, if you want the Messiah to come, if you want the world and the nations to stream to Jerusalem, if you want Jerusalem to be the center of God's world, we'll head that direction if you rebuild the temple. Temple is integral to that. So he has some strong theological reasons why he wants to rebuild the temple. Now, the reason we Christians picked up on this, we got all this stuff going on in the New Testament about the return of Jesus the coming of the millennial kingdom, the coming of the messianic kingdom, the coming of the kingdom that's going to be centered in Jerusalem. We have all this language in the New Testament. And the reason we have this language in the New Testament is because it's there in the Old Testament. Coming of Messiah, the coming of the messianic kingdom, all nations, and you think about all that stuff in Isaiah about the, gen the, the, the Gentiles have seen a great light. Remember that from Christmas? That, you know, the Gentiles seeing the light and the Gentiles coming to the God of Israel, all of that is centered in Jerusalem, centered in the temple in Jerusalem. That's why you have all these images, and Isaiah is full of it. You have all these images about all of creation streaming to Jerusalem. Um, and that's, that, all of that we call Old Testament eschatology, the, how, how all of creation, all the nations will stream to Jerusalem one day. Um, that was Jesus' heritage. Uh, that's the Jewish heritage. Uh, that's why they want to rebuild the third temple. And they're working on it. Uh, they've already reinstituted a lot of the furniture. Uh, if, you, if you go with me to Jerusalem, if, if you get to, if we, we will walk through the Jewish quarter of the old city, uh, which means you go to the restored great synagogue, which might have been originally built by Zechariah. Of course, it was destroyed several times. Last time it was destroyed was by the Jordanians who took Jerusalem. But the great synagogue in the old city of Jerusalem has been rebuilt. But out in front of that great synagogue, this fascinates people, out in front of that great synagogue, we get to show you the menorah that cost about $1 million to build. It's not no little menorah. It's a big menorah. It's about maybe three feet taller than me. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a big menorah, but it's going to be the temple menorah one day. That's on display now outside the front of the great synagogue. So, um, 
Uh, that's why you have all this language in Judaism and Christianity about the next temple. And um, we'll get to talk about that some. I mean, the New Testament strongly implies that when Jesus returns, there will be a temple standing in Jerusalem. Um, but again, the reason the New Testament implies that is that was a firm hope of the Old Testament. The, 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 the existence of the temple was a, a precursor to the coming of the Messiah and the glory of Jerusalem and the nation streaming to Jerusalem. One of the reasons they want to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem is um, so Messiah will come. Now, again, doing a little bit of Judaism, Christianity, their coming of the Messiah looks remarkably like our second coming. They just missed the first one. Um, they, don't, they didn't see a messianic kingdom. They say, how's he Messiah? There's no messianic kingdom. How's he Messiah? The nations aren't streaming to Jerusalem. How's he the Messiah? Uh, Jerusalem hasn't been glorified. How's he the Well, we, we worked all that out as Christians. He came the first time and, and the kingdom got started. But when the kingdom gets completed uh, in this earth, it will look like what the Jews have been yearning for. Um, so that's why Zechariah is going back now. He's saying, rebuild the temple. If you want the future that has been promised, rebuild the temple. So um, that's Zechariah. That's Zechariah. Uh, so you can use the book of Zechariah to talk about stuff like, um, you know, the promises of God are always faithful. They don't go away because you've been in exile or because life has gotten really tough for the last generation doesn't mean that, you know, God has revoked his promises. Uh, promises of God stand. Uh, Zechariah is a good book to go to, like the book of Nehemiah, by the way, if you want to uh, be motivated because you've got a large task ahead of you. Yeah, I can't remember. I can't, I can't imagine returning to the decimated, partially, greatly destroyed Jerusalem and trying to rebuild it, trying to rebuild my life, my city, my walls, my culture, and my temple. But that's what, that's what Zechariah's genera generation was faced with. Uh, he, he, they, he went back with the first wave of, of people who returned from exile. Uh, they continued to come for a few years. Um, but it, it takes about 20 years before they get the temple um, rebuilt. Now, we know from stuff like the book of Ezra, when the temple got rebuilt, again, Solomon's temple is the first one, when this temple got rebuilt after Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, you can read the book of Ezra. It was almost a downer for the people because the second temple was just, it didn't look like the old one. It didn't look like the glory of Solomon's temple, which is one of the reasons why King Herod came along many years later and, and renovated it, you know, enlarged it. He wanted it to be something that the whole Roman Empire was impressed with. But part of it also was that Jewish tradition that the second temple when it was rebuilt just did not rival Solomon's temple. Uh, it eventually will when Herod gets finished building. And that's why Herod's renovation took about 100 years. It was still in the process of happening in Jesus' day. And Herod's renovation of the second temple only ended like four years before the Romans destroyed it the second time. Talk about disappointment. But um, um, this is the temple that was rebuilt after the first one was destroyed. 
the temple that's the second temple that eventually will be renovated to be pretty glorious. It was glorious by the time of Jesus, but then not long after the time of Jesus, the Romans restored it. I mean, destroyed it. But um, much of much of uh, Jewish Christian tradition sees there'll be a third one rebuilt. Um, one of the things um, that you may find fascinating, and if you go to YouTube, you can discover it. Most everybody assumes when you go to Jerusalem, um, well, you see the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. Um, the Jewish community and most everybody assumes that's the only part of the Second Temple that remains. And it's not really part of the temple, it's just part of the retaining wall of Temple Mount. And up there is where the temple was. Uh, but that's the only thing that remains. That's why for the Jewish community, that's where they go and pray. It's very important to the Jewish community. Um, that's, that's the only thing that they say remains after the second temple is destroyed. Um, they're yearning to rebuild a third temple. Now, of course, if, if, if that's the retaining wall of the temple, and they want to rebuild the third temple, what's hindering it today? What's on the Temple Mount? Yeah, Dome of the Rock. Al-Aqsa Mosque, two buildings. Um, now, there is some interesting, and somebody, may, somebody mentioned it to me recently. There is some interesting scholarship being done, and it's not, it's almost convincing in some ways that that whole Temple Mount, that the Dome of the Rock's on and the Al-Aqsa Mosque is on, that was never the temple. That was the Antonio Fortress, where the 10th Roman Legion was headquartered. Uh, we, we now assume, and they'll show in Jerusalem, that the Antonio Fortress looks really, really small. The, the ruins of the Antonio Fortress. They are sort of attached to the Temple Mount. There are some scholars that say that's way too small for the 10th Roman Legion. That that whole Temple Mount was not the Temple Mount. That was, where the, that was what the Romans created to house the 10th Roman Legion. And, and the people that think that um, and there may be a motivation to think that. But to people that think that, say Solomon's temple and the second temple would have been in the city of David. You know, you've got, you've got the Temple Mount, the old city of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, the, the, the city of David is kind of on the slope. Uh, some of you have been there with me. If you went through Hezekiah's tunnel, if you go down to the Pool of Siloam, all of that's David's city the original Jerusalem. And the, the assumption is this up here on the hill is, is what was built post-David that became the city of Jerusalem that eventually became the temple. Um, there's some scholars saying it was never on that temple mount. The temple would have been down the city of David. And there's some warrant to say that. Now, one of the reasons they may be saying that is if, if I don't think you're going to sell that to the Jewish community. And I don't think you're going to sell that to the bulk of scholarship. But I never thought the state of Israel would be reestablished either. But if you could sell to the Jewish community and the scholarship that that temple mount was where the 10th Roman Legion had the Antonio Fortress, not the temple. The temple was down in the city of David, which feels kind of right that David would have been the first temple and then the second temple, the city of David. If you say it's down there, guess what you're free to do? You can rebuild. Right now, the temple, uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock is a little problematic. And it, it frightens me when I hear Orthodox Jews say, we need to tear that down 
So we can put our temple up there. So, I mean, it would be inconvenient. It may be right. It would be convenient if we can say the Jewish community, it was never there, it was over there. Leave them alone. Go rebuild the temple. That could really... Anyway, that's, that's, that's your interesting piece of history for today. If you Google or if you go to YouTube, you'll find some neat articles about people who are convinced the temple never stood on what we call the Temple Mount. That uh, it was always number one and number two temples were down in the city of David, which are on the slopes uh, of where the walled city of Jerusalem is today. But all of that simply to say the temple's a big deal to Judaism, and that's why uh, eschatology and Judaism's always said there will be a temple built when Messiah comes. Uh, that's why in Christian, a lot of Christian theology, we say that when Messiah returns, there'll be a temple built. There's not one yet. So what you're going to see in Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 is prophecy about Jerusalem at the end of history, the Jews at the end of history, and, and the temple at the end of history. Again, Zechariah's trying to motivate them to go ahead and build the temple so that some of this stuff can happen. So you with me? Okay. Um, now let me show you something else that's interesting. Um, when you deal with prophecy in the Bible, particularly Isaiah, Zechariah, when you deal with Old Testament prophecy, sometimes it looks as if, this is our Christian perspective, it looks as if the prophecy is about Jesus' first coming. Think about the stuff we read around Christmas. Sometimes it looks like um, the prophecy of Jesus' first coming. Sometimes it looks like the prophecy, what we Christians would say in the New Testament, looks like the prophecies of Jesus' second coming. Think about what we read sometime during Advent. You know, all of that discourse, particularly from the Gospels. So sometimes it seems like it's mixed up in the Hebrew Bible. Um, one of the best examples I ever heard explaining this came, I heard years and years ago when I was a fairly young new Christian, from Chuck Swindoll. Y'all know the name Chuck Swindoll? He talked about, I'm sure he borrowed it from somebody, he talked about how when you're, when you're looking in a mountain range and you're at a distance from the mountain range and you see the peaks of the mountains, you can't tell from your great distance how far apart those mountains are. You just see in the mountain range. You with me on that one? So these prophets of the Old Testament, yeah, they seem to mix up what we refer to, and I'll show you a beautiful example in a minute within a verse of each other. They seem to mix up prophecies of first coming, second coming. So now what we Christians do as we deal with Old Testament prophecies, we do this with Isaiah, Christmas, and Advent. With We do it all the time. We find prophecies. We did it last week during the Holy Week. You know, the prophecies from Isaiah about the suffering servant. We say all of that has to do with Jesus' first coming. You know, but when you're going through Isaiah and we're reading stuff in Isaiah about eventually, you know, all the nations will stream to Jerusalem. We say, oh, that's second coming. So, you know, that's where the Jews look at us and say, what are you doing? You know, how do you pick and choose? And we do sort of function this way as Christians. In the Old Testament, if it looks like it belongs to the first coming, we put it with the first coming. If it doesn't belong in the first coming, what do we do with it? That's why it takes two trips. We put it for the second coming. And now that kind of freaks some Jews out sometimes as to how we make those decisions. And sometimes it's as simple as 
I'll show it to you in a second. This obviously he fulfilled, because we think he fulfilled prophecy as Messiah. This obviously he fulfilled at the first coming. So if there's anything left hanging out there, and there is, we got to put that with the second coming. Um, so let me show you an example. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse... Uh, look at chapter 9. We're going to look at two verses in chapter 9. One of these you would have heard on Palm Sunday. One of these verses you would have heard on Palm Sunday. Because we are obvious, we obviously believe this verse was fulfilled when Jesus entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, his triumphal entry. So that, and, and, and in the New Testament, uh, the Gospels quote this verse and say, Jesus is fulfilling this verse at his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. So look at Zechariah chapter 9. This is one of the best places we see first coming, second coming prophecies so close. So if you look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, here's the prophecy you heard read, probably, on Palm Sunday. Because Jesus fulfilled this on Palm Sunday. Look at 9.9 of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? So yeah, the gospel writers quote that when they reference Palm Sunday, when they, when they explain to us what Jesus is doing on Palm Sunday. So we say, ah, he fulfilled that prophecy his first coming. He came, he was the king, you know, Hosanna to him who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed, you know, are you, um, save us, waving of palm branches. This is a prophecy that we quote in the New Testament and, and tie to the triumphal entry, Zechariah 9.9. 9. But he's coming humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's how we do this humble entrance of Jesus and say he's a king. So this, for us Christians, obviously was a prophecy fulfilled as first coming. I don't think I have to show, I don't have to say much about that. This was fulfilled as first coming, right? The gospel writers quote this when they explain um, Palm Sunday to you. Now look at verse 10, the next verse. Zechariah just keeps going because Zechariah, I think, can't tell how far apart the mountain peaks are. But look at the next one. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. See, he's automatically talking about war now. He's talking about war. And the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. This kind of stuff we read to talk about the final kingdom. Um, but look at the next part of this verse. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, we Christians say Jesus will do that one day. And, you know, the Jewish community looks at Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 and they'll say, well, 10 is certainly not fulfilled right now. So how can you say 9 is fulfilled? We say it just was. He took care of some of it on trip 1. He's going to take care of some of it on trip 2. And that's why, you know, their coming of Messiah looks an awful lot like our second coming. Because there are prophecies that we know he fulfilled first time. And anything that's left hanging out there, such as he shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, that certainly looks like it's yet to be fulfilled. So we Christians throw that into trip number two for Messiah. So um, 
You, you tracking with me on this one? Okay. So the prophets do this. This is kind of stark. They do it this, that Zechariah does it this strongly within a verse of each other. But we Christians, this is the way we read the Hebrew Bible. Drive some Jews crazy, but this is the way we read the Hebrew Bible. We say, there's Palm Sunday. It's already happened. Verse 10 is something yet to come. But both refer to Jesus. So um, when we get to chapters 12, 13, and 14, almost the bulk of this from our perspective, well, the bulk of this from the Jewish perspective is definitely to come. Um, the bulk of it, from our perspective, also is to come. Um, now, there, um, you, you'll see there's a reference in, in chapter 12 where it talks about, they shall look on him they have pierced. That feels a little first coming. You know, they shall look on him as, they shall look on him who, he, who they have pierced. Um, and they shall mourn for him. But when you look at the whole context of chapter 12, we Christians will say, because we have this, we have this, we just went through Easter, right? We have this tradition where even after resurrection, he, be, he bore the marks of his scars on his body, right? So when we see a verse here in chapters 12, 13, 14, that looks like first coming, and by the way, just so you know, I'm not making this up, is chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Um, that, you know, there's the piercing. They're going to see the one they have pierced. Now, the, you know, you can say, well, that, maybe they, they saw him at, when, they, when they did the piercing, you know, on Golgotha, they, they saw him. But what we're going to see in the context here, because so much of chapters 12, 13, 14 is yet future, uh, this may be a reference to the massive Jewish conversion to Christ at the end of history. They shall see the one they have pierced, and they shall mourn in repentance and come to him. But, you know, almost all of chapters 12, 13, and 14 um, are yet to be fulfilled from a Christian perspective and a Jewish perspective. Because, again, the temple, you know, you know they, they rebuild it, but it's gone again. So we have that dilemma. How, how is he going to return to a temple? Well, all you can do that is rebuild that thing somehow. So in chapters 12, 13, and 14, you're going to see, um, these are three chapters about and they have heavy influence on the book of Revelation. These are three chapters about the end of history. Um, so I, that's probably a good place to stop for today because I see the confused looks on your face.